Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Alex and Mo. I am a PT podcast. Uh, we've got an awesome guest tonight. Uh, Paul Schroeder is going to be joining us. He's got a, a very unique pivot that he's done that I can't say that I've heard uh, any or many uh, PTs in the world doing this, but you know what? It's a population that needs it and look forward to getting more to know more about it. Uh, as always, thank you to all of our subscribers. Continue to follow, continue to share and everything like that. Um, welcome, Paul. It's a pleasure to have you. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us tonight. Uh, well, I want to extend a, a big and sincere thank you to both uh, you, Mo, uh, and you, Alex, uh, and give you guys props because I've been listening to your pad podcast ever since uh, the gracious invitation. And uh, you guys are knocking it out of the park. I mean, very much like it says there in your uh, description. Uh, you have movers, shakers, uh, entrepreneurs, mavericks, uh, scoundrels, uh, and, the whole <laughs> and the whole lot in between. And now you have me. So uh, I apologize to your audience for that. No, not at all. Thank you very much. Do I really appreciate those those words. Um, it does mean a lot to us. Um, I mean, as you may not know, I mean, this podcast and how it came to be uh, was a constant me nagging Mo uh, to get this done. Uh, Mo and I have have known each other. Uh, we initially met through Twitter uh, several years back, and then we had the chance to meet uh, in person at a CSM in, in Anaheim. Uh, and we've always shared a, a love for sports and banter and, and stuff like that. And, and that's kind of where it came from. And I finally nagged her enough to where she said, yes. Uh, so here we are. Um, but thank you. <laughs> Do really appreciate that. Mo, you had something you want to say? Yeah. So speaking of nagging and I would say he nagged, he just kept encouraging me until I finally gave in. Um, has there been anyone or any opportunity that has basically nagged you into entering the direction that you're in right now, being a therapist for bowlers? Yeah, um, that's a great question. Uh, didn't uh, exactly prepare for that, but I know this is just <laughs> but I know nobody's ever prepared when they come on this podcast. No, and, and that's I, and I love the spontaneity of it. But uh, upon this uh, brief reflection, I'm really going to say it's my inner soul. Right. Um, I, I've been uh, very much into the sport of bowling. I didn't get into it until probably my mid teens, to be honest with you, uh, 15. I know a lot of people that when they're uh, very avid at their sport, they've been engaging since age four or age seven. I've been playing golf and baseball since then, but I didn't really get into competitive bowling uh, like high school bowling until my sophomore year of high school. Um, and it just really resonated a chord with the cockles of my soul. You know what I mean? I think I'm sure not just the two of you, but the whole audience knows whatever it is, if it's a, a really great song that really kind of stimulates your soul or kind of really uh, grabs you, um, that's kind of what the sport of bowling uh, did for me. Um, and then at a collegiate level, I wasn't, it was probably a combination of I wasn't quite good enough to bowl uh, Division One and also uh, really opting for uh, an academic route. And I thought I was going to be pre-med at that route, and maybe that story will um, unfold soon. So uh, bowling's always been a part of my life um, since 1985. I've bowled either one, two, or three leagues every year since 1985 until now. So I have a sum total of 49 or 50 years uh, just bowling league, let alone competition stuff, um, the couple of professional tournaments I bowled, other uh, types of things. And I was reading a quote. Someone uh, recently was saying, because their bowling reached its peak in like the late 50s, early mid 60s. And then wow. it began, be, uh, began to fall off popularity. But someone was equating, they said, that's because in 1961, um, there was no internet, there was no social media. The bowling league kind of served similar functions that social media did. And I'd never heard anything like that. And uh, I, I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. But, yeah, it's it's the spot where you just kind of hang out and breathe or have two or three adult beverages and relax after your day at work or hang out with some friends or maybe sort of forge bonds outside of the workplace with your workers, right? That was the big thing, to kind of go to the factory 
like in, in Rochester, New York, for example. All right, we have 6,000 workers and about 800 of them are going to go to eight or 10, 12 different bowling centers and bowl league. And then you kind of sort of uh, grow it that way. So uh, been very uh, active in that. And I like the uh, lifestyle. It, it, anytime you walk into a bowling center, it's like uh, a slice of uh, Americana, right? Just just look around and be like, all right, this is a hodgepodge of everybody. It's not just the blue collar person. It's not just the, the misfit toy, especially now. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, bowlers are athletes. And I'll speak a little bit later about bowlers are athletes initiative. Oh, we're going to have this argument. <laughs> oh, well, boy. You, you oh, know, boy. it's funny. It's funny that you said, like, the quote that you were referencing about, you know, bowling being like the Internet of back in that time. Because, you know, for me, growing up, like, bowling was always like this cool thing we did on Friday nights. Mm-hmm. Right. So my family, uh, you know, I'm originally I was born in Colombia, South America, but I grew up in Miami. Um, so there was a time period there where Friday nights, my whole family, so my cousins, everybody, we would just meet up at a bowling alley that was kind of central to all of us. And that was Friday night. You know, our parents got together, they had been at work, you know, had some beverages, you know, talking, whatever. And we're just sitting there playing and, and having a good old time. And up until what you just said, like it never, it never resonated with me that, that was like, hey, what you know, the exchange of information, right? Like exactly what, what had been going on that week or what they had experienced, what my cousins and I had experienced um, and all of that. So, you know, it's definitely very unique uh, experiences and, and stuff you just kind of probably take for granted until you're it's a passion of yours and it's something that you really enjoy doing. Um, so for our viewers that haven't caught on yet. Paul is a PT who is working with bowlers um, and on, levels. Uh, on, on a professional level. And again, when I first was introduced to Paul and, and I got to read his bio, I was like, man, this is quite the pivot from what you were doing. But now as you, as you describe your, passion for it, it's really not that big of a pivot because this is something that has always been a part of who you are along with being a physical therapist and all the other things that you have been doing. Um, But as I like to commonly do on our show is I like to take it back before that. Like, how did you get into our profession? Um, And then tell us about some of those steps that you took along the profession as far as working in, in and developing things of that, and then how you ended up at uh, at the bowling aspect of your career. Okay. Uh, this podcast only is scheduled to go an hour. Uh, I, I mean, this might, <laughs> yeah, might we, take we have time. Hour. We have time. We have time. No, and I know the golden rule is be concise, <laughs> but uh, this is kind of the crux of it. So please mm-hmm. stop me if I go wayward or, uh, or redirect me. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm going to first start off by saying uh, I, uh, I entered undergraduate. I started college in the 80s. OK, so putting it in perspective for people, I, I have 26 <laughs> years experience in the field. So starting college in 89, I've only wanted to do three things in my life, my whole life that I wanted to do as a vocation and a career. And this is serious. It's when you when you hear the first one, you may is this guy joking. Uh, yeah, I'm joking. But I was kind of serious from age four to five. I was hell bent on being a tap dancer. Um, I think I saw a tap dancer on, on Mr. Rogers. No, on Mr. Rogers neighborhood. And there, there, this guy, he was like gliding on the air. He was this cool cat, man. I was like, Oh man. And then, uh, I found out how much money they make and I realized I had no rhythm. So I bailed on that. Then, uh, smarter minds prevailed at age five. So from age five to 20, I really prepared myself to be a pediatrician. I wanted to not just be a physician. I wanted to be a pediatrician. I think I really uh, responded well uh, to my pediatrician. And uh, all right, that's what I'm going to do. But there's no one in the medical field in my uh, family or friend circle. And again, when I frame this, that, you know, I I had that thing in the mid-70s. So it's not like the way it is now, the way, uh, you know, college kids prepare 
themselves for college. And in, in middle school, they start doing volunteer internships and, you know, sending 4,000 shoes to uh, needy people somewhere in Asia or whatever it is like, boy, oh boy, that culture wasn't there, right? You're lucky if maybe you had a, a three hour shadowing experience and that puts you above everyone. So I just thought it was this primrose path like, oh, yeah, OK, I'm going to go to Cornell. I'm going to go to Johns Hopkins Medical School and then be, hello. No, dude, there's effort involved along the way. Um, so speaking of effort, it was at the end of my junior year at the University of Rochester. Um, go Yellow Jackets, D3. Um, and uh, myself and four other pre-meds were walking off campus. About a mile off campus was this uh, Kaplan Test Center. And we were about to register for a Kaplan class on how to beat the MCAT kind of thing. And uh, my parents, and I have a bunch of appreciations and thank yous. And if I don't get them uh, through, I just uh, politely request 45 seconds on the end so I could just get all my appreciations out there. But my parents, bless their soul, you know, wrote me a check. That course was like just about $1,000 of 1992 money. So this thing's in my pocket and uh, it's going to sound... It's physical and metaphorical. About a third of the journey uh, into that thing, walking to the Kaplan Test Center, I peeled off because I, I thought to myself, I'm like, what? I want to give 110% to my career, uh, being a husband and being a father. And I didn't think I could do that in medicine because at, at that point, I'm 20. I have a little better idea now of, of what goes on in medicine and uh, residencies, rotation, fellowships, the time involved, effort. We talked about effort. So I'm going to pause you real quick. At 20, you were married and a father? <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't get married. Oh, okay. No, I didn't get married until I was 39. Um, okay. So, But th these were my goals, right? And my gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. sheltered small world goals, uh, which, again, were upheld, but I didn't think I could do that. So I'm like, all right, what, what the hell am I going to do now? I'm a bio major three and a half years in. And another shout out to my roommate, Andrew Silverstone, who was uh, on the – D3 cross country team at the time. So he had spent some time in the training room and even one or two bouts of formal physical therapy. Uh, he ironically now he's, he was pre-med at, at the time as well. He's now a practicing vet in Virginia beach, not too, too far uh, from your area, a lot closer to you guys than me in Chicago here. Mm -hmm. So he's like, why don't you uh, volunteer at university sports medicine? Because even if uh, you don't want to go to PT school, you get to get hands-on observation and, and see what it's like. I'm like, physical therapy, isn't that some like old German lady at the parallel bars in a smelly sweatsuit saying like, raise your leg 10 times? He's like, no, man, it's not like that. And I got to observe university sports medicine, which had uh, three uh, orthopedic surgeons, um, three um, exercise physiologists, two athletic trainers and four physical therapists in like a 6,000 square foot facility. And I would say by my second day volunteering, by about three and a half, four hours in, that light bulb went off in my soul. It's like I had an epiphonic experience. I was like, no, this, this, this is the physical manifestation of what I thought I was going to get fulfillment from, from medicine. So I think I was more drawn to the relationship building and the interpersonal skills. Um, and I am uh, manually and fine motorly declined. So if uh, I know I wanted to be a, a pediatrician, but if I got into the surgeon world, I just didn't think I could ha uh, hack it. And uh, that's kind of how I got there. Well, it's good that you know yourself, Paul. That's that's great foundation to start from. Um, so you did you did physical therapy school. Um, you have your master's in physical therapy, right? Yes, because when I started, uh, the doctor of physical therapy was uh, just a baby uh, being un uh, rolled out at Creighton University in 1993. Um, and I was basically already starting, didn't even know what a DPT was. As a matter of fact, and here's another story, I applied in two years. Uh, and, and, and here's the thing. This is for your audience. I know you have PT students out there in the audience. I know you have uh, professionals of all levels. And maybe you have some students that are thinking about getting into PT school, pre-PT students. So uh, I am going to be your uh, patron saint or your poster boy for where there's a will, there's a way. Especially back then, it was so, um, how could I say, competitive, especially 92, 93. Uh, and I think they said it was more competitive to get into PT school than med school at the time. And if you don't have, you need a minimum 3.5 GPA. And most people had like a 3.738. And you better have a minimum science GPA of 
uh, 3.5. So here I was with a 2.8 GPA and a 2.33 repeating science GPA. Like who's going to take me seriously? But where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, and I wasn't going to take no for an answer. So that first time I applied to uh, whatever it was, uh, 11 schools, and I got 11 rejection letters. Um, and they all went in frames and they all went on my wall behind me, kind of serving as motivation. Right. Like, who, who are you telling me that I can't? I don't care about that. <laughs> so then the second those were all M, uh, master of physical therapy programs because I had taken the GRE and that's what I was going to do. Um, but then uh, the second time I was a little smarter. I applied to two or three bachelor of physical therapy programs, even though I had my bachelor's already. I'm like, well, maybe mm -hmm. it's a little more a uh, little less competitive, uh, uh, easier access to entry. And that second time I had. Uh, I applied to seven, let's say eight schools. I applied to eight schools, got seven rejection letters, but uh, I got one uh, opportunity for an interview at a fledgling program that was about to take its second class ever. That was Utica College of Syracuse University. They didn't even have candidacy for accreditation. They were kind of, uh, I think, banking on the, uh, the established OT program that was there for 35, 40 years. But we didn't have... Uh, we only had two faculty. We didn't have labs. It was just, I think Utica College put the cart before the horse. So uh, when I was there six weeks, they applied for candidacy for accreditation through CAP. Didn't get it. Uh, and of the 112 criterion, there were 98 things that they had to remediate. So rather than do it right and reapply a year and a half later, no, just in May, seven months later, they reapplied. And all right, you have 72 things now that, so it was part of a sinking ship. And the way that CAPT worked is, if you apply for candidacy uh, for accreditation and you fail the third time, you must shut down operations for minimum of five years. There were students uh, in my cohort uh, in the class above me and myself that threatened a class action suit to Utica College of Syracuse University. So then Utica was like, hammer, 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 what are we going to do? So they reached out to, at the time, Virginia Nealon, who was the director of CAPTI, and she reached out to all 218 directors of physical therapy programs in the United States. And there were two that said, all right, we'll give them a chance. So uh, at the time, they're like, yep, let them pay $50 admission. And as long as I think you needed like a, a minimum of a 3-0 or whatever uh, demonstrated at Utica, and they'll be automatically accepted, except that year of PT school, that neuroanatomy, that gross anatomy, ex-phys, this, that, nothing. You're starting fresh anew. But I didn't care because I was a part of the second year of Stanley Paris was rolling out this thing called the Institute of Physical Therapy MPT program, the only proprietary PT school in the nation. Um, Ten days before I graduated in 97 with my MPT, the name got changed to what it is now, the University of St. Augustine for Health Sciences. Uh, but through that back door, I was able to get into PT school. Man, I'm going to confidently <laughs> say that that is probably the most unique story about PT school that we've mm -hmm. heard on our podcast, because Definitely. Definitely. that is wild. Like you, <laughs> you backed into PT school off of a program that was on its last leg. And I think, like you said, when there's a will, there's a way, because, you know, I've always told, I used to be a faculty member at the university of South Florida, a school of physical therapy. And I would always tell my students um, that you just got to get through. You just got to get it done. And you just questions your exam. Because at no point in an application are they going to ask you, what PT school did you go to? What grade did point did average did you have? What did you score on your licensure exam? By how many points did you pass the licensure exam, right? Like all these things that some of these students get hung up on um, just aren't important. And I think that you've kind of proved that because you got rejected by 11 schools. 17. Well, yeah, when you <laughs> add the second round, right? Yeah. So you got all these schools that said, no, Paul, you can't be part of our program. And you said, you know what? Never mind. I'm going to find another way. And you found your way. And look at you now, like you're doing good stuff. You're doing big stuff. You've kind of paved your own. So, man, salute to you for doing that. Um, again, you're definitely taking the crown for the most unique 
uh, PT school story. But yeah, man, mm-hmm. that 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 is truly a testament. I just want to add an addendum to the uh, the, the unique story factor to just uh, sum up because uh, I really want to hear from you guys uh, and hear your questions and your stories. But uh, so there were a, co- a cohort of seven of us from, from my Utica class that could come uh, to University of St. Augustine, the Institute of Physical Therapy. They took three cohorts a year. And this is five and a half weeks before the uh, end of August cohort, knowing that there's a January cohort unbeknownst to us in the room, but for the two people, I don't know how this happened at this informational meeting, two people had already committed. So I don't know how they got in the know, or did they pay someone off? But they said, Hey, there's five of you here. We have room for one more student in our cohort in five weeks. And the other four of you can come in January. So of the five of you, before we even figure this out, who actually has the means who can just drive and hop in a plane and come down a thousand miles away and start in five weeks. And me and Sean Baker, we each raised our hands. And then the director of the program, Ray Patterson, uh, he was from Tennessee. So uh, when I do his thing, uh, please pardon my uh, Southern accent, <laughs> but he, he didn't know what he was going to do. He reaches in his pocket for a quarter. This is no shit. Like, and he's like, all right, he's like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to flip this coin uh, I went by my middle name for PT school. So I went by David. He's like, he's like, uh, David, you call it when it's in the air. And and, and me and Sean and, and the rest of them, we're looking at you. We're like, are you serious? Like our faith <laughs> of what the hell is going to happen is on a coin flip. He's like, yeah, he flips it up. I go heads. He gets it, puts it on his thing. He looks at it. He's like, it's head. David's David, you're my man. I'll see you in five weeks. Sean, I'll see you in January. So like, holy crumbs, man, like, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that all played out like and, and my friends from PT school, like it, yeah. it oh, just like Yogi Berra said, man, uh, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. Uh, and, and I took it. So you moved, from, you moved from New York down to Florida, right? Correct. Was, OK, moved down to Florida. So you finished the program there. Um, then what? What, what happened? Moved, yeah, I moved back uh, to uh, Bergen County, New Jersey, which is just six, seven miles west of the George Washington Bridge, greater New York area. And I worked for an outpatient uh, ortho, ortho and sports place. But and here's what I'm going to tell all your listeners. Uh, my fr- And I, I change jobs every, oh, I don't know, about year and a half, two years uh, for the first nine, eight, nine years of my career. So at nine years into my career, and I was reflecting on this uh, throughout my career, 15 years out, 20 years out in preparation for this. But it, it's really hitting me now that eight years out, like some students and I hear and you guys have a, a great what intellectual horsepower of guests you guys have and that are out there in the field. That's why I mm-hmm. feel like, uh, you know, I'm the uh, I'm the little the little guy sitting at the at the big boys table here. No, 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 but I always say we're, we all just sitting at the kitty table anyway, so it don't matter. And I'm, I'm, I'm riffing on your thing of, of us as a profession. <laughs> that's kind of personally how I feel sometimes. But when I was eight, nine years in, I did not have eight, nine years experience like a lot of people do. I truly, truly, and I'm not being humble. I just had about a year and a half, two years experience rinse repeated over four times. Right. So um, keep that in mind as well, folks. I, I thought I was moving on to it. And it's not like I was getting fired. I just thought it was the BBD, right? The bigger and better deal. Like, okay, this is going to be great. Uh, this has got a pool or this has got 5,000 square feet or look at the stuff here. Wow. They treat collegiate athletes, whatever it is. It was always moving on to that, but the nuts and bolts of what I did or how I did things didn't change much with the exception of, um, the second position I took, there was such a high emphasis on marketing. And in 1999, like that, we didn't talk about that or relationship building, but I, that was really placed on me. So that was an eye opener. Uh, in this position after that, uh, about six to eight hours a week, we did home care visits as well. So that's the only way in which I can uh, resonate with you for about a year and a half. Uh, I have a, a, a appreciation for um, for that aspect of the profession as well. But uh, aside from those uh, tweaky little things, um, it was essentially the same. 
until uh, I started with a venture capital group and kind of was the owner operator um, of my own clinic. And it was a, I would say it was probably uh, 75% pediatric orthopedics. It is because uh, I was located, I was leasing space from a pediatric orthopedic group. And I had 770 square feet of space where I was treating an average of 85 to 90 visits a week with a high watermark of 116 patients a week. Mind you, I'm the only therapist. I had a staff of four, but one PT. So that led to a lot of like, oh, and there I was then uh, 39 years old. Um, uh, I didn't have a kid. I was divorced and I was working 70 hours a week at my practice. And I'm like, wait a minute, dude. Like, didn't I peel off this road like like 20 years ago to be like, I didn't want this, this and this. Life has got to be better. Um, So I reached out to a former uh, colleague of mine who had just become vice president of operations uh, for Indiana and Illinois for a very uh, big conglomerate that had 220 clinics. And he recruited uh, me to go there to run the concussion management RTP program for the company, for all 220 clinics, educating clinicians and rolling out and monetizing a program that otherwise wasn't there. It was being handled by the sports medicine team, the athletic trainers. But it's like, hey, if we do this, no, we can bill for it. I don't want to take too much time. I just realized I skipped over a really big step. No, no, no. Okay. So here's the lesson, kids, in um, uh, always say yes and don't say no. Uh, the person, my number one referral source gave me 38% of my business. That's a huge thing. In, in most outpatient practices, if your top referrer is giving you 15, 20, that's a significant number. So 38% of your business. The other lesson learned is don't put a large percentage of your eggs in one basket because when that referral source uh, and friend moves to Germany, uh-oh, there goes one third of your business, Right. But before he moved and we're having a great relationship, he said, hey, do you want to uh, treat this concussion patient? And I put my fingers up like an upside down cross like this was Dracula. I was like, dude, I haven't had neuro in like 17, 18 years. Like it's not my bag. And I feel very uh, strongly about if you're not going to be at least above average about something, refer it out to someone who's going to be right. So uh, that's how he's like, no, no, no. I'm not talking about symptomatic stuff. I'm not talking about highly vestibular presentations. There's this new, and this is 2006, by the way, 2007. He's like, oh, there's this new kind of movement in uh, the concussion management world saying that you have to have a return to play program, meaning incremental, successive five days exposure to oculomotor, vestibular, cardiovascular, and as I found out later uh, and added my nuance to it was cognitive challenges and dual and try tasking. Uh, so it was a means by which to make sure that concussed athletes weren't just because in days in the past, and, and I'm not blaming athletic trainers, they're so um, under-resourced. They're, look, they're looking after 80 or 150 athletes, and maybe they might even have the best intended RTP program but they're taping 20 other ankles. They're going on the field. Who broke their leg? Who's got a compound fracture? Who's doing what? And you put someone on the bike. Oh, and oh, you were supposed to be off the bike. It's been 27 minutes. Sorry. All right. Stand on one leg. Okay. Okay. You can go out to back to play. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it, it wasn't nearly as, um, uh, as rigid or as process oriented as it ought to be. So I submerged myself in that world and I initially went like that, but I really liked the uh, offering of something that there was a need. There was a true need. And I felt like I was uh, fulfilling the need and learning and uh, scratching my professional itch, taking care mm-hmm. of my professional ADD as well. Um, and then it got to a point where I was the only uh, RTP clearance center uh, or one of four or five in New Jersey. So kids would drive sometimes 50 minutes, 75 minutes. Hey, I got my state championship game. Doctor says I need to do this RTP thing. Well, wait, listen, dude, it, I'm not going to have you start on Thursday or Friday because I'm not open Saturday and Sunday. You need to come Monday and bang, 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 bang. And if you don't have symptoms, then you can graduate to the next day. So it's incremental loading. Um, so I think that. You seem like uh, you like challenges. I, 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 I guess. You love challenges. Yeah. But I, I like your saying, say yes. You figure it out later. A lot of people say that's risky, but I do like your frame of mind. 
So, exactly right. Uh, and something that's served me well, uh, especially the last four and a half years with Fast Track Physio, and more specifically a year and a half with this bowl program, is I'm trying to live by the mantra, uh, don't let uh, uh, great get in the way of perfect or good get in the way of great. Right. I think sometimes I hold myself um, and we uh, as professionals hold ourselves to this um, near perfect standard that's uh, that's not congruent with reality. Right. But at the same time, you want to have pride in what you do. So I think yeah. with each with each age on this earth, I can reconcile that better. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to say about 26 years of practice to you, Alex, and to you, Mo, is that uh, I, I tell people I'm, I'm practicing 26 years. Um, and I'm going to keep practicing until I get it right. But it yeah. seems the reason why you're enjoying this so much is because you're doing what you love. And that's well, a huge part of reducing the frustration and the burnout and uh, the fatigue. Once you're doing something that you love, something that you enjoy, you found your niche of bowling and working with concussion. I know for mine, it's, it's home health. Um, Alex is home health. We both plan on retiring soon on a beach, hopefully. But yes, we do love home health for now. So we enjoy doing it. But the key for everybody is to find what you love and do what you love. It's not it's not going to be work if you're doing that. Oh, 100%. And it's so much more intrinsically motivating and self-determining. I was very fortunate while at the University of Rochester my junior year to take probably my best class ever in undergrad. I always say that the best class... Let me ask you guys, and then I'll come back to this. Um, mm. I'm going to start with you, Alex, since I uh, know you, Mo, a little bit better. Um, yeah. Alex, what was your favorite class in grad school and why? In grad school? Um, in PT school. So I, I'll start off with our program at the University of South. And at that time, and maybe still to this day, is unique in that your first year of PT school, you're basically in med school because we take all of our classes with the medical students at the medical school at the University of South Florida, right? So first year, you feel like you're in med school. Um, for some of us, it's kind of cool. Others are like, I didn't sign up for this. Like if I wanted to be in med school, I would have applied to med school. Um, so that was pretty challenging. So I'm going to have to say that the, the best class that I took had to have been when we got into our second year of PT school and actually started doing PT stuff. But it wasn't just like your intro to, you know, modalities and goniometer and range of motion. It wasn't that kind of stuff. For me, it was the, the critical thinking and orthopedics obviously was always a, a, major uh, source of what I wanted to do, right? I think most people start out in PT school and they want to treat the athlete. They want to work with the athletes. They want to work for a pro team. Um, and once I got the taste of that in a didactic format um, is is when it became through. So those classes we had, a, a it was called, a, God, what were those classes called? They were like clinical reasoning, but it was all broken down into stuff. And, and, and there is where I met one of my mentors, um, who, uh, Craig Garrison, who's all dude, uh, I'm pretty sure. I think he's back in Texas now. He's been all over the country. He's big in ACL stuff, but, uh, met him. He was a faculty member for a short time. And then I followed him to South Carolina where I did my sports residency. Um, so, yeah, I think it had to basically those that second year of PT school when we really got into the nitty gritty of how the body functions, go about trying to fix and and improve people's lives. Cool. How about you, Mo? Uh, well, I don't know. Recent, I, I think it was yesterday I posted on Twitter a picture and asked people which class it was for them when they were in PT school. And I said, neuro. Um, I fell asleep a lot in neuro. So that was not my favorite class. <laughs> um, but um, I would definitely say anatomy and physiology. I, I enjoyed it. Um, although the smell of the cadavers was nauseating, I enjoyed learning a lot more about the body, you know, figuring out the body parts. Um, a class that I grew to appreciate was pharmacology. 
But everything else, I was just like, okay, let me just get through it. That sort of stuff. Yeah. Cool. cool. But for me, it was cool. anatomy and physiology. So if I had to an answer um, at the grad school PT level, I would say uh, gross anatomy, specifically gross. Yeah. Uh, and mind you, I had the good fortune of taking it twice at Utica College and then again at, uh, at the Institute <laughs> of Physical Therapy. But at undergrad, I took this course called Human Motivation and Emotion. And it was taught by Ed DC and Richard Ryan. And they're the guys that basically came up with the theory and wrote the books and uh, tore internationally on it. And uh, it really gave me a lot of uh, fuel to understand um human behavior, motivation, extrinsic stuff, locus of control, and I try to apply it to my own life and understanding people and try to understand my three and a half year old son in that framework. And boy, that's uh, hard to sell anyone out there with uh, toddler age kids. Uh, I hear it's not the terrible twos, but it's the three nagers. Um, so he's going through that. So uh, it doesn't yeah. stop, man. I have a four year old. It doesn't stop. Okay. And, and, and thanks for that. Uh, but yeah, I yield the floor. I just wanted to make that point of, uh, of like you said, of doing what you love, lo love what you do. Uh, I put a, a post out um, on my Instagram and I wanted to give a, a shout out and an acknowledgement to uh, uh, a guest you had not too long ago, Jimmy McKay. Uh, but it's not just he, there are others that uh, are touting and uh, promoting the Japanese philosophy of uh, ikigai, which is really a Venn diagram of, are you familiar with this, Mo? Right? Uh, yes, I've seen it. I've seen it. Yeah. I've yeah, seen bits and pieces of it. The four overlapping concentric circles of uh, that which you're good at, that which you love to do, that which you can get paid for, and that which society needs. And the intersection of all that is like the Holy Grail or your ikigai. Um, so uh, when I was forging my way through the uh, return to participation, RTP, concussion management piece. Yeah, I was kind of dancing around it. Uh, when I opened my own out-of-network uh, practice four and a half years ago, Fast Track Physio, that really was the next level of actualization of that. But about a year and a half ago, rolling out the bowling program, holy cow, you, you want to talk about um, this is just 110% fun and not work. Here it is. Uh, yep. So, yeah. When did you realize, Paul, that you wanted to make this transition into the bowling world from a PT standpoint, because obviously it had been a part of your personal life uh, through all of this time. But not only that you wanted to, but that you felt that there was a need and you could be the one to fulfill that need. That's a great question. The, the second part of your uh, uh, inquiry, that, that's really the, the, the heart of it. Because for about eight to 10 years, so I had already moved, I moved to Chicago in 2011. So uh, for about eight to 10 years before I rolled out the bowling thing, I was, I, I think, and maybe for about 10, 12 years, I always wanted to like write a book on bowling. But it, it, I didn't want to write a book. I, I'm not an author. I love speaking. I love educating. Uh, you know, I've been an adjunct faculty member and all these sorts of things. Uh, and that certainly uh, uh, trips my trigger. But uh, that wasn't the mechanism, but that's the closest iteration I could think of what it was to, to get the creative thing out and to scratch that itch and fulfill that need. So I think the way I was doing it was like very grassroots um, and more personally slash privately, like getting ready for bowling league, not just like my workouts throughout the week, but especially my preparatory like workouts in the gym before, um, before bowling league because I wanted to perform at my best. And I knew that I needed to optimize mobility and do a bunch of neuromuscular and balance drills and get my core going and get my anterior oblique sling going together so I could really um, avoid injury and perform at my best. So after, I guess, eight to ten, ten years of doing that in different iterations, um, I just kind of said I was going to go for it. Didn't know how to go for it. Um, but then uh, I think putting my toe in the water – I had a client and a guy in my uh, league, Justin Perez, shout, shout out to you uh, at Action Pro Shop at Diversity River Bowl in Chicago. Uh, but he became coach of the Lane Tech high school team, boys varsity high school team, uh, city champs uh, currently. So, uh, But he gave me the opportunity to uh, be an assistant coach 
and strength and conditioning specialist for the team. So that was really me putting my toe in the pool. And about eight, nine months into that, I'm actually at that bowling center here in Chicago with my son who was two years old at the time. And if you've ever been to Diversity River Bowl, the wall all the way on the right that runs on the right side, it's a mural of three Hall of Fame bowlers, um, Earl Anthony, DeAndre Beatty, and Mark Roth. And bowling four lanes to the left of me is DeAndre Beatty, the lady on the wall. Now let's go back a little bit. In 2007, I bowled in the U.S. Open. Uh, I had now any any pro bowlers listening to this right now. Uh, let it be clear, I had no grand designs. I was just always urged by my best friend Ed Van Orden. Shout out to you, Eddie. Uh, he's like, hey, uh, he was a musician, but he never abandoned his job. But he picked up and moved out to L.A. like 21, 22 years ago to pursue an opportunity uh, of a music career. And he always said to me, he's like, hey, man, do you want to be sitting in your rocking chair when you're like 80 years old thinking, oh, I wish I would have given a, a legitimate, you know, a pro bowling tournament a shot. And I was like, yeah, you're right. But uh, I don't know if it should have been the most prestigious major. But for three days, I bowled six games uh, qualifying blocks um, uh, across the lanes uh, at Carolier Lanes in New Jersey. And at that time, uh, whether she knew it or not, there were 496 of us that bowled in the 2007 U.S. Open. Uh, Deandra Aspady was one of them. She was one of three women to bowl a men's major, which I thought was cool. So I met her in passing, just real, um, nothing to speak of. So uh, when I saw her at the lanes, I said to my friend Justin, who was in the pro shop, I was like, hey, do you think I could ask Deandra if uh, she would take a picture with me and my son in front of her mural? So he's like, yeah, dude, Deandra's cool. Uh, and Deandra always had a positive, just real great energy uh, about her, even back then and now, just a positive, approachable energy, just uh, uh, one of those uh, souls. So I asked her and she's like, yeah, okay. So Justin's snapping the picture, two, three shots, I'm holding my son. And then uh, we start talking and she's like, yeah, I've uh, reached out to three or four different healthcare prof uh, professionals. I've had two uh, uh, bouts of PT. And it looks like I'm not going to be able to bowl um, this upcoming season. Uh, I'm going to need to have knee surgery. And I was like, no, you're not. Let's give it a shot. Fast forward. We worked together four or five months. Uh, she was able to participate in the whatever it was. She bowled like two thirds or three quarters of the events on tour. She's uh, a mom and she wears so many different hats and has so many uh, not for profits and, and other things going on. But uh, kudos to her for being able to bowl that often uh, bowl successfully. She cashed in, uh, most uh, of the events and uh, her last event of the year, she actually won a doubles tournament with EJ Tackett, her first tournament in 10 years. And that's someone who five months prior was like, Oh no, you got to shut it down. You have no chance of bowling. So getting uh, hooked into uh, Deandra, who is such uh, a positive role model and an ambassador for the sport. Um, I don't know if it's 17, 18 uh, time member of team USA I think she has 70 or 80 gold medals, um, uh, just a wonderful human. And then she runs something called the EYT, the Elite Youth Tour. And youth bowling, youth sports overall in the last 10, 12 years, as I'm sure you guys know, have exploded. And the, the seriousness and the depth uh, and the talent level at all levels. So she has this Elite Youth Tour uh, where folks are um, uh, between the ages of 8 and uh, 22, uh, and competing uh, at a very serious level. So I became sponsoring that. I support that. I, I do uh, on-site treatment. Uh, I lead them in dynamic warm-up, uh, teach them a, a tip of the month. And I've got, uh, I've been access to uh, other bowlers of other levels, league bowlers, their parents, uh, other people on the PBA tour, PWBA tour. And it's just been a dream. That's awesome. That's awesome. So Always you in the right place at the right time. <laughs> that's all it is man but at the same time i'm a firm believer that when it's for you it's for you man and and, mm -hmm. and that was just a blessing that was just waiting for you so for you to be at the right time for you to be prepared and at the right place to be able to provide always able to do so having that meeting with her um has obviously opened quite a few doors for you and allowed you into some rooms that you probably may not have been in able to get to or it would have been a little bit harder to get to um you mentioned that 
the your friend the the pro at the shop uh was a high school coach and had you come in and and start working with those bowlers what was their reaction to this right because i'm guessing and excuse my ignorance that they don't think about working out or or anything of the sorts when they're like we just want to bowl like we're here to bowl we're gonna you know do this but obviously as physical therapist at how the body moves and what needs to happen to be able to bowl requires a lot of neuromuscular control and, and, and things of that nature so what was their reaction to the things that you're trying to get them to do and explain to them it was um more open-minded than i thought and kudos to justin and the people like deandra Aspady, uh pro bowler aj johnson who i sponsor on the uh on the tour and i do a lot of work with who uh don't just say it with their lips but they walk the walk um, and they really mean it and they live that life. So I think all those conduits, all those people and Justin him, himself um, uh, had seen me for some bowling and non-bowling related injuries. So I think before he even entertained it, uh, the idea and the concept, I think he was kind of talking me up and really uh, uh, touting the benefits of physical therapy and a regular strength and conditioning program in order to perform at your best and avoid injury. So I think he uh, set the stage right. He provided the right milieu, the backdrop. And then uh, someone like myself who is, uh, you know, passionate about it, I think they got the passion and uh, saw what happened and saw the results. And uh, th there were some people with whom I had more remedial sessions with. So I would work with the, uh, the whole team as a group once weekly. And then some of the guys would come to me two times a week in addition to that to work on remediative efforts. And it was great to see the progression of them getting more stable, um, uh, getting stronger, being able to make the switch from one-handed to two-handed. One kid made a switch from right-handed to left-handed, you know, midway through his competitive bowling career. And I think without that foundation and the strength and conditioning and mobility piece and attention to that, um, that wouldn't have happened. So although it wasn't met with open arms and it's not like they ran with it, oh, give us more, coach. You know, can, <laughs> can, we do, can you show us three more progressions of that kickstand RDL, please? Can I do a payoff press in, in tall kneeling? Can I do push-ups with plus on one bowling ball? Like that didn't happen, but they were willing participants, open-minded, and objectively week to week at the end of the day, people were better. And I think they were just happy to be uh, participating, uh, participating in it. I'm very excited that uh, this upcoming year we're going to uh, integrate a little more of the mental game. So we're going to have some sports psychologists. We're going to have Deandra and other people come in and uh, help support uh, that aspect of the mental game. Because much like golf, tennis, these other games, um, it might be 85% mental. It's what's between your ears, especially at the elite level or the more elite levels. Like it's it's already assumed that the the talent pool is going to be, you know, 9.8 at least out of 10. But it's how you handle the stuff in here uh, that uh, dictates what executes out. That's awesome, so, man. Yes, definitely. Is. So the practice that you have, you have to be directly involved. Has any student, uh, because you're a clinical instructor as well, right? Are you still a oh, clinical okay. instructor? I have not been a clinical instructor um, in the since uh, I've mm -hmm. started fast track physio. I want to. It's okay. just a little challenging because there's a delivery expectation of, no, I'm paying this out of network money. I'm not going to have some PT student treat me. And I know that they could be more of a, a sideline Sammy and do some minor things. But that's doing a, a disservice and an injustice to the student program. So those 26 students, uh, PT students that I've mentored throughout my career, that happened in the first 21 years of my career. However, our fellow uh, spokesperson, Leo, uh, mm -hmm. as you know, uh, is a faculty member at UIC. And we've worked mm -hmm. and, and I've spoken with his uh, ACCE uh, and him. And I think the ideal fit, because I don't want to close the door. I want to, to show people that this is a thing. So by all means, they could shadow. And that's, that's always uh, an open door. But being a like a student affiliate, 
the thing we're broaching now is there, the, the, and I don't know where, I want to say maybe after or midway through second semester there, um, they do these three-week immersive experiences while still having some didactic work. Uh, and I would be amenable to that. But okay. I just want to make sure I, that- I was going to suggest, you could, you could possibly- I'm open like to suggestions, please. Yeah, What's a part-time part rotation where they would do like one, one day a week for like, you know, three, four weeks, eight weeks. So they can just have an idea of what working in a specific niche uh, would be like. Because a lot of new grads are graduating wanting to do their own out-of-network practice, um, do cash PT. If somebody else likes bowling or likes tap dancing or um, whatever it is that they love doing, twirling, they could be a strength and conditioning coach or physical therapist for, for twirlers. Mo, the great thing is that that in the state of Illinois, you don't need to have an Illinois PT license in order to be a CCCE. So no, I've just extended okay. you that role. You are now the clinical nope. coordinator uh, for no, 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 no. fast track physio. Congratulations! I I I have I have my hands full. I don't need anything yeah. else. Well, I don't need anything else it too. Mo, Mo, I, I, I'm noticing a trend. Um, for our guests this season, right? Uh, so, couple, a couple same weeks barber? back, we all have the same barber. No, no, <laughs> I, I still, I'm still holding on. You said, you said guests. Yeah, me too. So. <laughs> well, yeah. Here, here's the thing. So, a couple weeks, maybe a month or so, and gosh, excuse me for forgetting her name, but she was the dancer PT. She worked with yes, the dancer. Uh, D D Denel. D. Right. Yeah. So I said at that time, because I had had the opportunity to work with dancers, that dancers are athletes. Right. So now a bowler is an athlete. Like, I don't think that that is up for debate. He, but, he's coming for me. He's coming for me, Paul. That's what he's trying but, to but, I know. I, I appreciate his diplomacy. But <laughs> again, it's like it's your you're out of the norm athlete right so like i think mm -hmm. this that's the pattern i've noticed on our some of our guests this year's like taking the off beaten path with the the different populations that you can work with in our profession but that they're still athletes dancers are athletes and i apologize d i know you tagged me on instagram to come out on one of your things i've been very busy i will try to make it um but paul is working with athletes it's not the ones that we pay big bucks to go watch uh, in an arena, a stadium, or even at a college campus, but they're athletes, man. Like what they need to do requires some sort of skill and stability to be able to do it effectively. Because Lord knows when I go every now and then to go bowling, it ain't pretty, but I'm still pretty athletic. So <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly... To be successful in physical therapy, you have to think outside the box. And not because you uh, favor or like orthopedic setting means that you just have to work with uh, a footballer, a baseball player. Think outside the box. Do what you think you're going to enjoy. You will be successful. Yeah, I wanted That's to... Uh, oh. No, I wanted to point some uh, attention to uh, some research that's just come out and uh, also kind of announce uh, something that uh, uh, a partnership that I'm developing it, hopefully going to the next level, things that have more traction than myself. So there was this great article uh, written by uh, this woman, Brianna Zaberic, as part of her DPT thesis. I think she's been a PT maybe one or two years now. She also uh, happens to be a bowler on the PWBA tour. Uh, so kind of someone who's like in lockstep with what we're talking about. And the uh, research was titled Musculoskeletal Injuries in Elite Collegiate 10-Pin Bowling Athletes. So she reached out to the top 10 women's programs and top 10 men's programs in the country. And it was a 131-item questionnaire about injury. They got 101 respondents. So that's a pretty big N. And what they found in the world of bowling that there's such a paucity, there's such extremely limited research on injury rates in bowling. Injury rates, go figure, are more frequent in the absence of a conditioning program. The uh, 
increased workload, especially now in a more condensed time with the with the men's and women's pro tour. They used to have, say, 20, 24 events spread out over six, seven months. Nope, now it's all going to be jammed into three, three and a half months. So that's more uh, uh, load. So volume management, it's, it's, it needs to be handled administratively. So especially at the elite levels, and it really alters uh, risk. So one of the things I want to do is take this further, this research, and also at the PBA and PWBA uh, levels, um, the pro athletes that we're talking about, because they are athletes. So uh, I'm already networked down that way. So crossing our fingers that maybe in six to 10 months, we know a little bit more. But like you said, Alex, it's the repetitive motion in our sport, right? Taking a 15-pound spheroid and delivering it 150 to 225 uh, times a day, five, six days a week uh, at minimum. But the pretty uh, interesting thing was that, again, only 60% of these elite uh, D1 bowlers participated in a, a conditioning program. And 87% of all respondents had uh, injuries and 75% of those 87% had injury uh, recurrences. So there's definitely a need for uh, development and implementation of preseason, midseason conditioning programs and injury screening. So toward that end and uh, the passion uh, with which uh, I've been uh, discussing, myself and someone else in this space, Heather Sterner, who has been, uh, she's a strength and conditioning specialist. Um, uh, she's a registered dietitian, a, a personal trainer, a massage therapist, uh, just a, a great mind. So she's actually been, uh, I, I got linked uh, with her through Deandra Aspady again. So shout out there again, uh, maybe about six months ago. Uh, and to find out that she had been training two to three male and female pro bowlers for about eight, nine years, but there wasn't buy-in. But I think there's a little, the, the pace is not as glacial as it was. The inertia is starting to get a little more. So she and I are just rolling out uh, Bowling Strength and Conditioning, uh, Conditioning Academy. And that's going to be basically an interactive uh, community, mostly online, helping bowling athletes of all levels to enhance their bodies for movement. We're going to focus on educating and supporting the athletes to embrace these concepts of strength, conditioning, and wellness to optimize performance, maximize longevity, and live a healthy, active lifestyle. And ultimately, our goal is to foster a very accessible, supportive, and engaging community that cultivates the initiative that hashtag bowlers are athletes, Mo. <laughs> Man, I, Look, I, I think you're gonna that, stop I, coming from here. <laughs> I, I, this is this is a, a perfect wrap to to this to this episode with you, which has been awesome, which is basically, you know, if I can sum it up is you found or identified a problem and then you found a solution for that problem, which is how people and businesses and all these great ideas come to be, right? Because Everybody has an idea. Everybody has these goals and these dreams, but it's putting it into action. It's finding the problems and finding how you can fix those problems. Because once you do that, you've made somebody's life better. And Bingo. I think that's what you got. And, it. And, I, and, and that's and that's the juice that that gets me flying. That's exactly right. And, and that's where you get your buy in. Right. Because when you approach these these athletes they want to get stronger. They want to get better. They want to be able to bowl a game, a season, whatever, without getting hurt or without having to miss. Right. And if you can fill that need for them, if you can fix that for them, that's your buying. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, like Jim on our episode, he said, everybody wants to tell a story, right? You've got to make your story unique and, and make it personalized, make it personalized to that individual, change their story, impact their story, and your buy-in is there. Um, so, so I think what you've got going on, man, is very good stuff, obviously very unique, um, because I can't say that I've heard of a PT or, or a healthcare professional that is putting this much time and effort 
into a population which is underserved, <laughs> you know, because they just don't get the exposure. Obviously, the research that 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 um, individual put out shows that they're not getting the exposure. They don't have the education. Um, and I think you've got the opportunity to impact a good amount of people that don't even know that they need your help with your systems. So kudos to you, man. Congratulations. And and definitely look forward to to hearing more about what you got going on, man. Um, but again, thank you very much for, for spending and letting us know about all this cool stuff because again it, it definitely brought it to my forefront um to understand like you know what this is this is people that need help too and and this is a a, a population that could really benefit from that yeah there are over fifty-six thousand seven hundred high school students that participate in bowling and right now uh, this is no joke this is from whatever nfhs um it's the fastest growing sport high school sport in our country right now. Number two is lacrosse. So, uh, and I'm sure that they get a lot more uh, attention. I'll put my uh, thank yous um, uh, to uh, on hold. Uh, I did some of them. I'm sorry I didn't get to shout no, out. No, go ahead. Go ahead and no, go, go ahead. ahead, go, ahead, go, ahead. go ahead. Because Alex, Alex, Alex is charging crew staffing for sponsoring this episode. Okay. <laughs> and, and then I have uh, a parting thing for each of you. But. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. So the thank yous, uh, my parents for their uh, undying lifelong support, my college roommate, Andrew St Silverstone, for kind of urging me in the way of uh, PT. Believe it or not, uh, I know she's not listening. And, and anyone who knows me, you're like Maria De La Cruz. She was my girlfriend at the time that got me a job to, as a research assistant to do research that got accepted for the World Physical Therapy Conference in the Netherlands. So that is what got me into PT school. And I want to thank Russ Meyer, the, uh, what do you call, the director of this fledgling program at Utica College for accepting me based on that research. And he saw himself in me, an underachieving person who didn't apply himself to his grades. Uh, so thank you, Russ Meyer. My best friend, Ed Van Orden, for urging me to bowl in that tournament. Dr. Tim Lyer, the pediatric orthopedist, who got me exposed to concussions. Uh, Terrence Scroy and Pat Vignona, who I worked with in Jersey, who now are running uh, the Hospital for Special uh, Surgery Sports Medicine Program. Check them out on at Sports Rehab Lab. Jennifer Galligan, my wife, my rock, my ironclad support. Tom Parry for allowing me to uh, have a home and grow my practice in the Chicago Strength Gyms. And I'm in three locations. Thank you, Tom. Justin Perez for Pro Shop uh, Ownership uh, and the Lane Tech Connection. Deandra Aspady and AJ Johnson, two professional bowlers who, like I said, are really uh, talking the talk, walking the walk, uh, and helping me fulfill my mission. Uh, okay, well, somewhere, uh, Alex, I saw that the, nothing begins with an N and ends in a G. Is that right? Well, handles our social media. <laughs> okay, but no, that was but that was associated with you. Go ahead, Mo. Yes, yes, well, yes. It, it was so, it was the the our she posted it on our on our podcast uh yes uh page on Facebook well, on all of our platforms. Okay. Uh, I just have four exceptions to that rule. No, no. Nothing N O T H I G <laughs> starts with an N and ends with a G. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that is so in my wheelhouse of dad humor that And and that Ladies and gentlemen, that was not even scripted. Paul was punked on our yes, <laughs> because I was gonna go. Hey, what about Nate Dog, Notorious B.I.G. No, 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 Nas. No, no. I know Nas doesn't end in a G, but he is a G. So, oh man, so, so much for that. Uh, and then finally, uh, parting things with Mo. The last time mm. we saw each other. Uh, we were sitting uh, either next to each other or across from the table. Uh, do you remember at a dinner with yes. Justin uh, at yes. that French so, restaurant? Yes, in uh, and Alexandria. We, and, and I feel like we got along swimmingly. I feel I truly feel like I got to know you a little better. Uh, mm -hmm. And you uh, delved into some seafood that you ordinarily, I think, wouldn't have tried. I appreciate your open mind. But <laughs> I don't know if come November, December, playoff football time, We'll be able to do that because my Pittsburgh Steelers and the maturity of Kenny Pickett 
is going to oh, rise God. above the Baltimore Ravens. I yield. Mike drop. <laughs> <laughs> That's that Baltimore is not even her team, man. She oh, just no? picks and chooses. Alex, Alex, Alex. She picks Alex, and chooses. She Alex, picks, come on. Don't let those pictures at the stadium like she a fan. <laughs> Paul, I'm a Ravens fan. He claims that I'm a Commanders fan or a Redskins fan, whatever they call themselves. But hey, look, no, Magic, ma Magic, Magic <laughs> uh, is a part owner now. You should support. Support the Commanders, your official team. Well, Mo, <laughs> if, if you sprain your hamstring jumping off that bandwagon, Fast Track Physio can help you out. <laughs> right, well, everybody thank you very much paul <laughs> big pleasure man big pleasure is awesome getting to know you thank you for coming on the show uh as always supporters followers please follow like share uh we really appreciate you and and all the support that we get and uh follow paul as well man everybody have a yep. wonderful be blessed. Thank you guys so much. Sincerely, I'm blessed. Thanks for the opportunity. Yes, sir. You're welcome. Good night, You're welcome. everybody. Good night. Good night.